Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Anne Mazel and Dr. Wes Hutto, authors of JDN 2-19, Hitting the Target but Missing the Mark, featured in Parameter Summer 2021 issue. Dr. Mazel and Dr. Hutto are associate professors in the Department of International Security at the Air Command and Staff College. Thank you, Anne and Wes, for joining me today. We're here to talk about JDN 2-19, hitting the target but missing the mark. So essentially, it's JDN 2-19 versus JDN 1-18. So your article said that there are some changes that risk distorting the logic of military strategy sacrificing means ends integration to organizational impulse and raising the prospect of future shortfalls in U.S. strategic effectiveness. What differences did you find and how are they significant? Stephanie, first, thanks for having us. At the time of writing and publication, we were both serving as course directors at the Air Command and Staff College. And as course directors, it's our responsibility to take and respond to strategic guidance along with some joint doctrine to inform the development of our respective courses. Now, naturally, we came into contact first with JDN 118 2018, which we thought did a good job of unpacking the means ends matching process of military strategy. And about midway through our course director terms, JDN 219 was published. Initially, there was actually a lot of confusion over whether 219 supplemented JDN 118 or whether it wholly replaced it. And so we started asking questions. And as we spent more time with the two documents and we spoke to more and more folks close to the JDN process, it became increasingly clear to us that these notes were in competition or were in conversation with one another over the meaning of the term military strategy. As we say in the article, joint doctrine notes are pre-doctrinal deliberations, meaning that they exist in this weird liminal space between theory and doctrine. Given that this is a contest over language, we were interested in assessing what the political or organizational implications of the outcome of that contest might be. So what we ended up doing is focusing our analysis on four categories of interest, and those were strategy formulation, strategy implementation, strategy assessment, and then finally, strategy innovation and adaptation. And the funny thing that we found about these documents is that both of them claim to give priority to the political end. But across all four categories that we studied, we found evidence that the documents treat political ends in some pretty notably different ways. 118 seems at least to give a good deal of substantive priority to political ends, and 219, in turn, seems to leave its discussion of political ends a little bit more at the surface level. So, for example, if we look at one of our categories of interest, which is strategy formulation, 118 accepts that political ends might be slippery or variable or ambiguous. It outright acknowledges that complexity and uncertainty are inherent in any strategic challenges, that unknown factors are likely to outweigh known factors in strategy development, and that the strategist is always going to operate in an atmosphere of uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity. And because of this, it calls for regular engagement between political and military leaders. So in loose terms, it assumes 
that the two groups are going to take part in something like an ongoing strategy discussion with each other. And it even indicates that the absence of this sort of dialogue might leave means ends alignment or unity of effort or maybe even creative strategy options at risk of being discounted. And if we look at 219 instead, it tends to treat strategy formulation as something more akin to two discrete processes. First, political leaders define the limits on action and resources, and then military leaders step in and begin crafting options for imposing order on the environment or generating friendly advantages against the enemy. And we think that this type of language, the references to asserting order over the environment or creating friendly advantages or removing the enemy's ability to hold the initiative, that they reflect a sort of implicit military bias for the offense. And that we acknowledge there's nothing wrong with this bias in and of itself. It's understandable that military leaders would want to shore up certainty and advantage, but we are somewhat concerned by the fact that it seems as though 219 goes on to sort of roughly equate strategy formulation with operational design. In other words, 219 seems to imply that politicians get a say early on, but the real process of formulating strategy actually begins when the military steps in, and we're concerned if strategy formulation exists as these two separate monologues rather than an interactive dialogue, then maybe the ends lose out, and maybe we run the risk of expending blood and treasure for little discernible purpose. And it's maybe worth noting that these types of contrasting examples are abundant across the two documents. And while we freely admit and appreciate that 219's embrace of military organizational preference probably reflects frustration with civilian leadership, we think it's worth asking whether these preferences, if formalized in doctrine, might actually stretch the meaning and purpose of strategy in undue ways. So in the abstract and over the long term, might they risk servicing military organizational aims over national policy ends? And in more concrete or immediate terms, might the increased prioritization of advantage-seeking or offensive military behaviors incite fear or insecurity in competitors? And if so, those competitors respond in kind, possibly kicking off security dilemmas or spirals to war. Do you have any final thoughts on that topic? Well, so we think the question becomes, you know, following the reading of our article, you know, what does it take to get this right? In 2013, in the midst of the evolving civil war, the Syrian civil war, the Senate Armed Services Committee asked General Dempsey for a list of options for possible military action in Syria. General Dempsey provided a letter in response to that request. If you read that letter, and if you read between the lines, you might pick up on two things. First, there's a sense of frustration from his staff with the absence of political guidance or objectives. And second, he gives a list of options that speak to the realities of military strategy making. That making military strategy is largely about the attempt to discern political ends. The Dempsey letter is such a good example of JD and 118 in practice. The Senate had asked General Dempsey for options in Syria, but as politicians are wont to do, did not provide Dempsey with any desired political objective. <laughs> so for strategists, this is an obvious problem, right? Means without ends is not strategy. If you read the letter carefully, what Dempsey and his staff have done is to provide a list of options that respond to distinct and varied potential political objectives. They have, in a sense, forced a conversation with the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee over what the Obama administration actually wants the strategy in Syria to be. And what we think JD and 118 endorses is this view, right, that discerning political objectives and designing appropriate means is all about muddling through. 
there are mm -hmm. no golden roads, only better senses of direction. And if Dempsey and his staff had taken 219 as operative guidance, then the letter may have reflected a lack of concern with the political objective and an emphasis on controlling the environment through offensive action. Because Dempsey and his staff were instead focused on the question of the political objective, they wrote a document that forced the choice of the objective onto the political decision makers. Hugh Strawn says that military strategy is a constant dialogue between the military and the political class to reconcile desired ends with appropriate means. And we think that this is exactly what he means. JDM 118 has a better sense of direction than 219 because it provides practitioners with the practical tools to construct such courses of action from the ground up while always keeping the political objective in mind. The Obama administration struggled to define U.S. political ends in Syria, maybe because the Syrian civil war didn't really pose any significant existential threat to the U.S. and realistically only placed the U.S.'s aims in the Middle East at risk. And the Dempsey letter represented an exercise in encouraging, if not lightly coercing, political leaders to define the ends. So we're concerned that if under conditions of great power competitions, if this trend continues, what does that mean? We might hope that U.S. leaders would see fit to define the political ends much more clearly under conditions of great power competition. But if they don't, if they cage political ends as winning against China or campaign on beating China, then we'll have to be really hopeful that military leaders will take the time to ask the hard questions of those politicians. We'll have to hope that they request clear political guidance, or at least, as General Dempsey did, offer a pointed nudge in that direction. We think that JDN 118 asks military leaders to do that, to grapple with uncertain and ambiguous ends. And we are concerned that JDN 219 might tend to imply that the hard questions perhaps need not be asked, that it might actually be resigned to the possibility that political ends can remain ambiguous so long as environmental certainties can be created and preserved. That is all I have. I wanted to thank you, Ian and Wes, for your time. Thank, thank you, you so Stephanie. much.